everyone. I'm Joan. And I'm Ralph. And you are listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, a new podcast by two former journalists that fills in the gaps between daily news and historical trends. And our angle differs from the hot takes that you're used to. We're the ones who help friends and family cut through fake news and get the story behind the story. The more we taught our friends and family, the more they asked for. And then they brought up the idea of a podcast. So here we are, for it's clear that everyone needs tools to deconstruct the news themselves. Because this country has turned into what Ralph calls the land of confusion. And it's not your imagination. The American media of today overwhelms you with details, but it does a far worse job of informing you than it did 50 years ago. And if there's ever a time that we can't afford to be underinformed, it is now, because we are at a crossroads. Yes, indeed. You know, this could be the most important and transformative political period in our lifetimes. The policies set in motion over the next few years could very well determine our quality of life decades from now. And we must understand how we got here as a nation before we can truly know which way to go forward. Consider this podcast our contribution to a long overdue truth and reconciliation. So let's illustrate this with an example from our own lives. After all, you don't know us, right? You need a quick introduction to who we are. At no point before 1967 could Ralph and I have had such a fulfilling life in the United States. He's a black American, and I'm Asian American. We're both Gen Xers, born in the mid-1970s. It was the civil rights movement, reformed immigration laws, and the women's rights movement that have allowed us to do so much more than our grandparents could here. Those laws let me be born in the United States. They permitted Ralph and I to study together at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. They allow us to own businesses together, vote, and be legally married across this nation. And if the civil rights and immigration laws had changed just 10 years later, Ralph and I likely never would have met. So since graduate school, Ralph has worked as a TV sportscaster, and I've been a newspaper reporter and columnist. We spent the majority of our journalism careers in Fresno, California, where I worked for the Fresno Bee, and Ralph worked for KC24, the NBC News affiliate. Then the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009 devastated the journalism industry, and we left the world of daily news and sports reporting to become coffee farmers in Hawaii. Yeah, so we have a unique perspective. You know, we're old enough to remember a time not too long after the civil rights era, yet young enough to understand how the internet works, how social media works, and how that's changed the world for millennials and for Gen Z. The biggest changes? Well, you know, before laws would guarantee that you saw a diversity of viewpoints and that the information you saw wasn't profit-driven via ratings and clicks. Social media algorithms didn't filter out what you see by studying what you've looked at in the past. And now, American media is far more fragmented than it was in, say, even the 1980s. So what can you do to navigate this? Well, we're going to share four overall tips that we use ourselves. And together, we're going to return to them repeatedly throughout the episodes of this podcast. So tip number one, do not look for absolute truth in the news. Now, remember, the news is just the first draft of history, and you see this play out whenever there's um, you know, some sort of fire or some sort of breaking news event. If you look at the news coverage from a few days later, 
compared to the very first stories, you'll see how much has changed. So what we advise folks to do is to look at how current events match up with historical patterns, study the players in history and how their actions have a tendency to repeat, and we'll give you specific examples in future episodes. Here's tip number two, what's the source? So you folks have probably seen the media bias chart, right? Um, this is something that is put out by Ad Fontes Media, and it's popped up all over the internet. It is a graph, and so there's an x-axis and a y-axis, and what appears on the graph is something that looks like a bell curve that's made up of the different names of news organizations. So on the x-axis, you have political bias, and it stretches from left political bias to right political bias, the further you move away from the origin. And then on the y-axis, uh, it has it ranks overall source reliability. So it can either stretch from containing inaccurate and fabricated information all the way up to original fact reporting. And so, as I said earlier, it looks like a bell curve, right? And the way that this is structured is that they have these sources put into different boxes, and there is a box at the top center that says it's the most neutral or balanced bias, and it contains uh, a complex analysis or mix of fact reporting anal analysis, as well as fact reporting and original fact reporting. So the reaction to this online has generally tended to fall into one or two camps. So number one, there's disagreement over where a particular media company is placed on the chart. You might hear people say that, oh, no way is CNN that factual, for example. Or, you know, why is this so far right? It's actually more to the left. Uh, and then the second reaction that we see is this, that as long as you stick with the sources in that top center box, you're not going to be misinformed. But as former journalists, that makes us really cringe a bit. And we would caution you against outsourcing your critical thinking to these companies. Yeah, that, that, that's an understatement. I mean, a couple of things to bring up. You know, first of all, this is not an exhaustive list. There are good reporters and some good news outlets that we like to follow somewhat to see their opinion. And they're not represented on the chart at all. And we'll talk a bit about this in future episodes. Uh, secondly, the sources skew very American. Now, that makes sense. Ad Fontes is an American company, but what it does mean is there's a U.S. slant on current and historical events that come from around the world. You add in the aspect of U.S. foreign policy, and sometimes you get really inaccurate reporting because they have a perspective that's here instead of a perspective reflected where things are actually happening. And I can give you one example historically that shows how reporting or lack thereof can be a problem based on the information you do or don't get. And that's the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Now, I'm sure that you're sitting there like Jones looking at me right now and saying, what's the Gulf of Tonkin incident? No, that's why I'm here. Okay, here we go. Let me explain the Gulf of Tonkin incident. To do that, I'm going to need to give a brief history review. So back in 1964, Vietnam was split into two countries. There's North Vietnam, which was being assisted by China and the Soviet Union, and South Vietnam, who was backed by the United States. Part of the U.S. military action at that time was sending warships into the Gulf for so-called normal patrols of international waterways. 
The U.S. ships were in international waters officially, but they're operating off the North Vietnamese coastline. So on August 2nd of 1964, the USS Maddox got into a small skirmish with some North Vietnamese torpedo boats that were trying to chase the warship away. One of the torpedo boats got damaged, and the Maddox took one bullet through its upper hull. Just one bullet. Two days later, the Maddox returned and accompanying it was another U.S. warship called the Turner Joy. And those warships reported in an ambush by the North Vietnamese. They claimed that the North Vietnamese fired more than 20 torpedoes at them. In response, President Lyndon Johnson went on national television to denounce the attacks and requested that Congress give him the authority to attack North Vietnam for its aggression. And three days later, he got that authority. Congress passed the Tonkin Gulf Resolution on August 7th with no dissenting votes in the House of Representatives and only two senators voted against this. As it turned out, and as some in the higher levels of government knew at the time, all of the publicly shared information was untrue. The American ships were not out there on routine patrols in the Gulf. They were carrying out electronic espionage against the North Vietnamese. And there was no torpedo attack. In fact, the best explanation given was that the sonar waves had bounced off the rudder of the U.S. warships themselves and were mistakenly identified as torpedo attacks by the radar operators. Certainly, there was no damage anywhere on those ships from these reported 22 torpedoes that were supposed to have been fired. But, you know, that's not what the intelligence agencies reported to lawmakers, and it's not what the media reported either. And this was never fully vetted or refuted between the 1964 aerial bombings of North Vietnam and the troop deployment that started the following spring. And so the Vietnam War was expanded based on a lie. And this lie was not officially refuted until the turn of the century in declassified and released intelligence documents. And we'll link to those in the show notes. You know, another good example is the New York Times' stunning apology for their coverage leading up to the Iraq War. In May 2004, more than a year after the war started, the Times admitted they fell for misinformation pushed by a circle of Iraqi informants, defectors, and exiles bent on quote-unquote regime change. And let me read one paragraph here so that you folks get a sense of just how extensive the problem was. They wrote, Editors at several levels, who should have been challenging reporters and pressing for more skepticism, were perhaps too intent on rushing scoops into the paper. Accounts of Iraqi defectors were not always weighed against their strong desire to have Saddam Hussein ousted. Articles based on dire claims about Iraq tended to get prominent display, while follow-up articles that called the original ones into question were sometimes buried. In some cases, there was no follow-up at all. Now, the entire uh, mea culpa is worth a read, and it's too long to go into here, so we're going to go ahead and link to this in the show notes. But even more important, you know, it wasn't just the New York Times that fell for this misinformation. Other major news organizations had similar reporting. Item number three on our list really could have been number one. It's that important. Follow the money. Now, this is always important when you think about the news you're getting, and it's just as important 
when you want to understand what companies you get your news from. The famous Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message. So in our world today, who controls the message? Well, right now, six corporations own more than 90% of American broadcast media. And there's been unprecedented consolidation of media on the local level. This was made possible by the 1996 Telecommunications Act. So let me back up here again and explain. The first Telecommunications Act was passed back in 1934. It was one of those New Deal laws. And that regulated telephone, telegraph, and radio, which of course was the dominant medium at that time. So over the years, there were some amendments to the law, particularly as television came onto the scene. But there hadn't been a major overhaul until the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And that overhaul was very much needed because they had to include a brand new medium for people to, to connect with each other known as the Internet. However, one big part passed in that law was known as Title III, and that allowed media cross-ownership to occur. In other words, one company or one person could own a local TV station, a local newspaper, and a local radio station, all in the same local market. The regulatory framework from the New Deal era was gone, and the idea was to foster open market competition. What happened instead was massive consolidation of media companies. Now, let's take Comcast, for example. Many people know them because they provide cable television services. They also own NBC Universal, so they have a lot of news networks. NBC, CNBC, MSNBC, Telemundo. They also own a slew of local television stations, as well as the Sky Network over in Great Britain. But they're in broadcast entertainment, too. Companies like Sci-Fi, USA, Bravo, they're all part of this group. And movies? Yeah, that too. Remember, this is NBC Universal. That means Universal Studios, which includes Focus Features, DreamWorks, Amblin Entertainment, you know, the Spielberg entities. That's all under Universal's umbrella now. Oh, and let's not forget the Universal theme parks too. All in the same company. You could actually live in Orlando, Florida, wake up and watch MSNBC, take the kids to Universal Studios in the afternoon for a day at the theme parks, come back in the evening, watch a movie put out by Universal and spend your whole day with media content from one company. And most people don't even realize it. Yeah, they don't think about it that way. And it's all the same thing. Now, of course, Comcast is not alone. You know, Disney is another example. They own ABC and ESPN. Disney, of course, is the iconic movie company. But even above the Disney cartoons, think about Marvel Studios, all the Avengers movies, the X-Men series. Now, these companies are worth massive amounts of money. Comcast Holdings is worth more than $200 billion. The exact number changes depending on the stock market. So it's no big thing for Tom Hanks to get a feature interview on the Today Show to promote the post when it came out in movie theaters a few years back, or for ads about Spider-Man to be fully integrated into the opening of the NBA Finals. It's a lot of control over the media, which means control over the message. And it crosses from news into entertainment and increasingly into social media as well. Mm -hmm. You also have to look at who's paying for particular opinions to appear in the media. 
A good example comes from a Washington Post investigation from May 2019, and we'll link to this in the show comments. The paper put out stories looking into conservative activist and money man Leonard Leo, who at the time was the executive vice president of the Federalist Society, and he has since become the co-chairman. Now, the Society is a leading nonprofit in the conservative legal movement, and Leo's work for it shows just how good he is at managing PR. According to the Post, Leo wrote this in 2009. I spend probably close to 800000 annually on a PR team at the Federalist Society, and we generate press that has a publicity value of approximately $146 million each year. That's pretty remarkable, right? Well, other than the official work he did for the Society, Leo and his allies also helped raise $250 million through a network of nonprofit groups. The Post says part of this money was used to push conservative policies and judges between 2014 and 2017. Think opinion essays, pundits on cable TV news, online videos, quotes for news stories, etc., to support the nominations of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh for the U.S. Supreme Court. Now keep in mind, this is what is called dark money, for these nonprofits don't have to disclose their donors under IRS rules. Yeah, and this ties into point number two, what's the source? A good practice for reading opinion pieces is to scroll down and see who the writers work for. You're going to notice some names that pop up again and again. Names like the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the Brookings Institution, the Center for American Progress. Study what they do and then track how often you see them. You'd be very interested how often they pop up. And our last big point, point number four, no binary thinking. This is a big problem of our divided nation. It's the thought process that says it's us against them. It's the Fox News crowd versus the MSNBC crowd. You know, it's one reason we have such pitched arguments between liberal versus conservative, but Really, this political mindset is a 20th century construct, and it's going to become increasingly obsolete. The discussions around the 21st century are going to be centered in corporate power, populism, progressivism, libertarianism, classical liberalism, religion, ideological differences of all shapes and sizes. That's going to be what we talk about in the upcoming period. So thinking binary good, bad, liberal conservatives, not going to serve you well as we go forward. Yep. You guys have to think in shades of gray. Yes. Yeah. And so that wraps up our four tips for you. Um, I don't know. What's next? Gosh, there's you know so much we want to talk about with you guys. So during our next episode, Ralph is going to break down the history of the black vote in America. And a spoiler alert for you guys is that it is a lot more complex than the media portrays it to be. Yeah, I cannot wait to share that with everyone. We're also going to have a future episode where we talk about Reconstruction, that 12 years after the Civil War when the country tried to fully integrate the society for the first time. We're going to talk about what it achieved, why it failed, what the lost causes which came in its wake, and how much all of that affects our world right now, including the protests that are still going on in the streets to this day. And also, one of our friends requested a show about immigration, as in, who's allowed to be American and who gets excluded, and how does that definition change over time? 
My family's own immigration story will help illustrate this issue for all of you. And so, of course, we want to take questions from you, too. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on insert your topic of interest here? And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Many, many thanks for spending time with us today, and we'll hang out with you again soon. Bye, everyone.